we are moving from the first chapter of Revelation to the second chapter. We've we have seen with John the risen Christ. And he fills out that first page of Revelation, that first scene, as he well should. He fills out the last part of Revelation. He really fills out large and holds together large portions of the middle of the book. As we as we've talked about now, I think somewhat at length in these first couple uh, three lessons here in Revelation, the point of the book is the main subject of the book and the one giving the subject matter is Jesus Christ, right? It's a revelation, not about the Antichrist or anything else like that. It's a revelation both of Jesus and by Jesus. So it's a pulling back of the curtain to see what he is really like. He's really risen. He's really the most powerful being, not creature, being in the universe. He's really a man. He really represents those who look to him by faith. He's really reigning and he's really returning, right? And so it's this awesome truth that holds the book together. It holds the church together. And it is our great hope that he is on the throne and that we're seated with him no matter what happens and that we're headed somewhere good. Um, and that's toward the wedding feast of the lamb and the, and the renewal of all things. What we're doing here as we step into this first of seven letters in chapter two is we're transitioning into the, the second portion of the book. It's the first uh, of, of seven things in the book. There are, there are three more to come. The, the number seven, really the book of Revelation, and I'll talk much more about this moving forward, but it's worth mentioning here uh, because we're, we're, in gate, we're stepping into the, the seven words that Jesus has for each of the seven churches in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. Um, Revelation isn't linear. It's not past, it's not uh, sort of pres- John's present day to the future to the judgment day in the new creation. It's not, it's not temporally linear. It's circular. It repeats itself. It's it, scholars call that recursive or recapitulating each time with increasing intensity. It's basically seven pictures of the same period of time, which is, and I'll contend for this again in future lessons, but which is the, uh, the time between the two comings of Christ, his first coming in weakness, his second coming in power when he finishes what he started. So I want to contend, and then this is, I get this, I mean, largely from a guy named Hendrickson, William Hendrickson, who wrote, I think in 1939, um, I think was his first publishing. It's been reprinted a ton of times, uh, more than conquerors, a great commentary on the book of Revelation, but it's recapitulating in it. It's a book of sevens. It's the same scene, the time between the two advents of Christ seven times. And you have a bunch of sevens in the book. So this is the first one that we see, the, 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 the seven letters to the churches. And then you have, after that, you have, uh, starting in chapter six, I believe, the seven trumpets. No, excuse me, the seven seals that are opened. And that wonderful scene right before that in chapter five, where Christ takes the, the book that's perfectly sealed, that is, with seven seals, the perfect number. And he grabs it and he opens that book, which is God's plan for all of history. And then you see that begin, those seals begin to open. And that's the opening of the seven seals. And then you have seven more things. The open, the blowing of the seven trumpets from the end of those seals. And then you have from the end of the trumpets, you have the seven bowls poured out. And then you have the end. So that's essentially the book. Seven letters, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And the, the intensity just increases each time. Okay. So here we have the seven letters. 
And we are transitioning here. Just a couple things before we jump into the letter to Ephesus, which is the first letter in uh, Revelation 2, 1 through 7. The, um, how do I want, what do I want to say first? The, um, What I want to say first is this: the position is. Well, well, let me let me say the smaller thing first, and then the larger thing. But the smaller thing is this: that there's a mis- just a small misunderstanding I think that's um, important enough to mention, and that is that when people think of that are somewhat familiar with the book, you think of Revelation chapters two and three, and you think, oh, those are the, those are the letters, those are the, those are the seven letters to the churches. That's true. Those are seven particular words to seven real local particular churches during John's time. The letter that he wrote here, that is the book of Revelation, would have been written out. It was written out. And then it would have been um, taken around as a circular letter to these to these um, churches in Turkey. And they're in a, they're mentioned in a circle. And it would have started with Ephesus, which is the closest to where John is, which is he's just off the west coast of, of Turkey on the island of Patmos, a Roman place of Roman exile, a work camp, a penal colony. Ephesus was the closest. And from Ephesus, it would have gone around to the other churches in the order that they're they're listed. And it would have been read out loud. As John says in verse 3, blessed are the ones who read this book out loud. In the ancient world, things were read out loud a lot more. People did not read silently, typically. And there are a lot of people in a corporate setting. There are a lot. We still read stuff out loud, but in here... Um, it's part of worship, but also you would have had a lot more illiterate people. So for something to be read out loud was a way for it to get to everybody. And so all that to say, look, we tend to think of, okay, what are the letters? What's the letters of the churches? It's two chapters two and three. No. What does John tell us in verse four? He says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. In other words, this whole book is a letter. This whole book is a letter to these churches. And within that, you have these particular words to each of these churches in two and three. Now, that's the minor point. Okay, the major the more major point is this, the position of chapters two and three. Think about it. We have the risen Christ, John's encounter with him. John falls and Jesus puts his right hand on him and he says, do not fear because I died. I am the living one and behold, I died. But I'm not dead anymore. I'm alive. I conquered death and sin. I'm for you. I have the keys of death and hell. Um, that's why you don't need to fear. This amazing, awesome picture of the risen Jesus Christ. He is the conqueror. He has the victory. That victory was accomplished at the cross, and it was vindicated by the, res- the resurrection. And he's seated now at the right hand of the Father. And he says, therefore, because I've done these things, John, we can, I, I can write history. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Boom. Now, what we have in chapters 2 and 3 is, well, what we have beyond that, what we have in chapters two and three is the church, the church that represents the entire church until Christ returns. That letter goes out to to the seven churches and through them to us today. And if you'll notice just the position of these words to the churches, imagine this book without them. It would be the risen and conquering Jesus. It would be this chapters four and five, this view into the heavenly places, all these seals and trumpets and bowls and cataclysms and and the fight with the vanquishing of the dragon and the rising of the beast and all these things and then the end comes and Christ 
just does away with his enemies and brings heaven down. It wouldn't, in other words, it wouldn't be as grounded. But we, what we have is we have the church, this letter to the, these letters to the churches, these words to the churches that Christ speaks to them because he's walking among them and he sees them and he knows them. And what that does is it grounds the book and it also shows us by its very position that the church, it's out of the church. Christ, the victorious Christ, through his church, through his body, through his bride-to-be, is going to, he is going to tell us what is going to happen in history, for the rest of history until he returns. In other words, it's through the church, because of the risen Jesus Christ, that history marches forward and makes sense. And we're going to talk a lot more about that, but without the church, there is no, there is no history. And I know that's a big claim, but that's one of the things that John is showing us here in the way that he structures this book of Revelation. So two and three aren't just a, a sort of parenthesis of, hey, some words to these churches in Turkey, and then on with the rest of the, the heavenly, strange, um, weird, apocalyptic stuff. No, the church is, is the prism through which the word of Christ and the plan of God in Christ for all of human history until Jesus returns and makes all things new um, marches forward. So it's an amazing thing. We'll talk more about that next week when I preach um, when we're all, all the house churches are together and I really will preach really on that very thing. But we need to home in now on Ephesus, which is our text. Let me go ahead and read it. I'm going to try to start reading within these um, recordings. I'm going to try to start actually reading the text. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Okay, so far so good. This is great stuff. But, uh-oh, verse 4, but I have this against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Oof. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet, yet this you have, you hate the works. So this, he's going back now to something, something else good that they've done. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, and that's, if I don't get to it, let me just say now, that is probably um, they're tolerating immorality, sexual immorality and other things. So he's saying, look, you're you're ethically pure and we'll get to the other stuff, too. You're, you're doctrinally sound, but you've lost something central. OK, verse seven, last verse in this passage. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Wait, I thought it was Jesus. Yeah, that's right. Jesus and the spirit work in concert because they are one God to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. How wonderful. What a wonderful promise. He gives it. Okay, so, and that, that just reminds me to say the first thing, which is that there's a structure to these letters, and it's essentially not not all of them are this way, because some of them lack, two of them lack a praise, and two of them lack a rebuke. But for the rest of them, and this is the basic structure, uh, there's praise, then there's rebuke, or a call, and a call to repent. So it's not, he doesn't just wallop you, he he points something out that's it's a cancer, 
And then he says, but turn, turn to me. He gives us a He points it out so that we can be healed, right? And then there's a promise. There's a praise and there's a, call, a rebuke and a call to repent. And then finally, there's a promise. There's always a promise to those who, to those who overcome. The Christian life is one of overcoming. We don't strive. We don't strive to enter. I mean, there's one place where Paul says that he's not talking about salvation itself. We, we are saved by the work of God alone through believing on the person of Jesus Christ and his work and what he's done in our place, right? There's no striving to be saved, to be adopted by through faith uh, as God's children, to be cleaned. That's by the blood of Jesus. It's a gift. It's a free gift through faith, received freely um, through faith in Jesus Christ. But we strive as Christians to live the Christian life, not not out of our work, but out of abiding in Christ and who he is. Paul says constantly, I strive, I work harder than any of you. Philippians 2, what is it? Verse 13 and 14, um, the famous verses where he says, he says, therefore, um, I'm going to have to turn to the verses here. He says, therefore, um, man, I'm, I am going to have to turn to the verses. This is embarrassing. Um, he says, yeah. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But notice he doesn't, he says, work it out, right? Work it out. Not work to be saved. That's not at all what he says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But he does say work. It takes effort. It takes zeal. It takes striving. For it is God who works in you, right? Both to work and to will his good pleasure. It's God who's working, but you, it's, you've got to work. It's not, hey, do your part and he'll meet you halfway. That's not at all what he's saying. But there is a striving here. And so the Christian life is one of overcoming. And we see that in all these letters. But the central message to Ephesus, and it is in the center of these verses. And that's a bit of, you know, art imitating life. He puts it at the center because it's central. Is look. This is an amazing church. This is a church that Paul spent almost three years in teaching up to five hours a day. For three years. And it's one of the reasons, no doubt, that she's so doctrinally sound. You know, into the first century, she's been around for at least a full generation. Into the first century, she's still contending for the faith amidst all the, I mean, Ephesus was a den of magic and emperor worship and had been made the official center of, of emperor, of the worship of the state. And we're seeing more and more of that in America, aren't we? The worship of the state by the emperor, um, almost said Diocletian Domitian. And so there is so much, and there is so much syncretism at the mixing of different religions in with Christianity. And there's so much pollution and, and uh, Christianity was in danger uh, in so many ways of being alloyed, of being mixed with falseness, of being watered down, uh, you know, by other religions, but also just by the fleshly impulse to the Judaizing sort of, hey, You've got the moralistic impulse to we've got to add a little bit of if you misunderstand what I just said earlier, you could think, yeah, we have to strive a little bit to be saved. No, that's not at all the case. It's all done by Jesus through his cross and resurrection and his life and his death for us received by faith. And then we work it out. Um, And so there are all these temptations. No, no, this is a doctrinally pure church. He commends them for that. He commends them for being ethically pure. So their theology is on point and they're striving to faith. They're also, he commends them for their ethical purity. You hate the Nicolaitans. He also commends them for their perseverance. You are persevering. You're putting your shoulder to the plow, my friends. You are working hard. 
Can I ask you what else could be done? What else could the Lord want? Well, I'm going to tell you because he tells us right in the middle. He says, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. And we'll talk hopefully briefly about the, the, the ways that he tells them to repent, the solution. But the, the nub of the issue is the, is the fact that, man, none of this is worth anything to Christ because he is a lover. God is a lover. He is love itself. He is a relational God who he's a father loving his son perfectly and the son receiving that love and giving it back to the father. And the spirit is the effulgence of that love. God is love. Salvation is being pulled up into the love of the Godhead. It's what we're made for. It's why every song is about love or love lost. We are made for love. We're made for relationship. We're made for that restored relationship, for that broken bone to be set, which sin has broken. Um, and Jesus sets it and he brings us back to the heart of the Father, back home. And man, he wants all of our love. He wants, he wants, he made us to love him first and foremost. And when we do, everything else works. And when we don't, nothing else works. It's kind of like when you love, this is a silly example. I mean, it's not silly, but it's, it's basic, but it works. When you love, it's all about ordered loves, right? If you have your, if you're loving, but you have your loves out of order, things don't work right. Like when you, if you've seen a family, you may be one of these where the husband loves or the wife loves their, her kids or his kids more than his spouse. There's goodness there. There's goodness in the family, but there's something fundamentally wrong. And even the kids don't feel, even though they're being loved first, you would think they feel most love. No, they, they feel, even if they can't articulate it when they're young, there's something terribly wrong. Daddy ought to love mommy first. And, and then that love, we ought to be second. And that love ought to, or third in this case, you know, God, your spouse, your children. Um, that love for us ought to pour through mommy. And there's a security there because they have come from the love that mom and dad have for each other. So when that's out of order, when you love your kids before your spouse, it messes things up big time, fundamentally. Um, so much more the case with God. He made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. That's page one confession by Augustine. Wonderful. He has. And he is after us. We can do everything else right. These guys, essentially, we're doing everything else right. They're persevering. They're doctrinally pure. They're Solid on point, reform theology. I throw that in their tongue in cheek. I hope you know that. But so many of us reform folk can be so proud about our theology, but we can have lost our first love. And Jesus is calling out to us and he's saying, you've lost it all. You know, First Corinthians 13, what does Paul say? You can have it all. You can give your body to be burned. You can give away all of your possessions. You can teach like a maniac. You can have so much faith and do miracles, but you can do all that without love, in which case... It's all worthless. It's worthless. Jesus is, God is jealous for our love. He has moved heaven and earth to, to bring us to himself and to have us to himself. And if we get that right, if we understand. So, so let me just um, break this down a little bit. In fact, it's probably just good to read at this point from my, my mentor, um, he talks about, he says, man, I've seen, he doesn't say man. <laughs> he, he says, I have seen men on the assembly floor of Presbytery fighting hand, tooth, and nail against liberalism of any kind, against modernism creeping into the church. And he says, look, they, they're to be honored for that. There's a time to speak out. There's a time to fight against false religion. That's a part, that's the job of a shepherd in part is to fight away wolves that could, stuff can come in. The doctrinal purity 
of this church in Ephesus is to be commended. And one of the reasons they were so doctrinally pure probably is because Paul was there for three years teaching, teaching, teaching. They're really well grounded. But orthodoxy without a warm heart, without love at the center, if it doesn't produce love, then it's it's fundamentally flawed. Um, so Dr. Kelly goes on to say that um, it's good that they were fighting tooth and nail, but he says there's a, free, a fragrance, a sweetness, and a zeal for soul winning was gone. If you get close quarters with some of these men who fought to hand, tooth, and nail uh, for orthodoxy, you know something about their personal and familial situation, you, you may realize that something has gone from their lives. There's a fragrance and a sweetness and a zeal for soul winning that's gone. And a zeal for soul winning comes out of a burning heart for the living God, a love relationship with him. Um, he goes on to say the spiritual power and divine presence is not completely gone, but it's burning very low as evidenced by a lack of sweetness and drawing power in them. And, you know, this is, uh, this is the issue. And I think there's, 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 it's no accident that this letter goes first to the Ephesian church and the Ephesian church is the first one mentioned and the first church out of the seven that's addressed at the heart, the only rebuke that he levels that Jesus who has burning eyes and sees straight to the heart of things. He cuts right through all the appearances and right through what is and, and, and certainly right through because all these other things that he says are, are true as well. But right through, um, you could have looked at this church from the outside and said, perfect doctrine, they're ethically pure, they're persevering, check. He knows their heart, he sees their heart, he cares about it. He sees right to the right past pretense and right past what is to the heart. And there's, there, it's, no, it's, it's not for no reason that the first church here, uh, the, the rebuke is, you've lost your first love. You've abandoned it. Um, and this is the most important thing to God. It's so important that he says, look, if you don't repent and recover that first love, then I'm going to remove your lampstand. In other words, the church is the lamp of the world. It's the light of the world that tells the world. It's our influence. It tells the world what Jesus is like. And if we have everything else right, but we don't have love for him and through that for those around us at the core if there's not a burning zeal for God and a passion for his name and for who he is and that love relationship isn't burning, everything else can be right, but our the, the world isn't going to know Jesus. Our witness will our witness will dry up, our witness will the, the lamp's gonna go out, the light's gonna go out. Um Jesus does not want the world to know him as a you know, theologically perfect, but cold God. That's not, because that's not who he is. He rescued us by hanging on a cross for us and enduring the white hot wrath of God against sin. He is a zealously loving God and he wants a church that is loving him in return and pouring out that love to a lost world. Um, if we lose, everything else is right, like with this church, but we lose Love for God is our first thing, not our second thing, not our fifth thing. Our first thing is, is what drives us. We're losing the engine. All that's left is a chassis or a husk. Leon Morris, a commentator, says, he says this. He says, uh, they yielded to the temptation ever present to Christians 
to put all their emphasis on sound teaching. In the process, they, they lost love, without which all else is nothing. Again, perfect theology, this is me now, perfect theology is worthless, and indeed it's dangerous without a zealous love for God. It can make our a, a focus on perfect theology to the neglect of a living relationship with God, characterized by love, um, can make our hearts grow cold. It can lead to pride, coldness, hardness. True religion and true orthodoxy and, and good doctrine is so important, and it leads it leads to love. It fans the flame of love. But this is a real danger in the Reformed Church. Uh, Tom Schreiner writes, True orthodoxy is always warm, loving, and generous in spirit. And my mentor, whom I quoted earlier, it was often fond of saying in class, there are men who are proud of their superb theology, but they're mean as snakes. They don't know Jesus. At the heart of right doctrine is love perfectly expressed through the cross. Now, uh, let me touch a little bit on the word itself and then kind of finish with um, some, of the, some of the things that Jesus says they need to do. Um, it, the word here is translated in the ESV, in our translation as I read it, abandoned. You've abandoned your first love. And you may say, you may kind of think that's a, a loophole. I have not abandoned Jesus. I've not abandoned my, my first love. I still love Jesus. But the word can also mean neglect. It's a bit more convicting to me, right? Have we neglected, have you neglected your love relationship with the living God? Be honest. If you're not honest, this is not going to help you. If you're not honest, nothing is going to help you. Do you put Jesus, do you put the triune God in Christ? First, in your time, in your thoughts, in your affections, in your energy and zeal. I know that I don't always. I fall short. This is a rebuke to me. Maybe maybe you put your family first. All these things are going to be good things, right? Maybe you put your career first or financial security or just feeling secure or comfortable. Maybe it's education or maybe it's America, politics. There was, like I said, there was state worship going on in Ephesus. There's plenty of state worship increasingly here. It's a sign of degeneration. Um, it's called statism. Maybe you put your health first. Maybe, maybe someone else is first in your life. Um, or maybe you put you first. And that's really kind of at the heart of all these idolatries. Uh, wanting others, caring so much about what others think about me is really caring about me. I'm, I'm number one. They need to love me. But Jesus calls us to come and die and follow him. Die, die to all these things and put him first. He who doesn't love me more than all these things isn't worthy of me, he says. And he's right. Because he knows that that's how he's made us. It's the fabric of the universe for us to adore him and everything else works right. And then it falls out from that. Um, a bit of syntax here, which is word positioning. In, in the Greek, uh, this, this word is last in the sentence. And so um, it, this word also means uh, you've left me behind. So literally the word itself, placement-wise, is it's last. It's left behind in the sentence. So it's a bit of that, that, that literary device is called mimesis. It's art imitating life. He's, he's putting it in a place where he sh he's um, showing us what, what, what the Ephesian church has done. You've left me behind. You love me first once. 
but you put me last. E- even in the midst of, don't forget, this is another rebellious church. This is a church that kind of looks perfect on the outside. And even on the inside, there's so much right, right? Again, great doctrine. They're contending for the faith, wonderful, persevering, ethically pure. Mm, but they've lost their first love. He cares so much. Um, and again, it's the way things work. He cares about it. It's not that he's a jealous, petty God. He is a jealous God, but because he, he knows he's made us for himself and he wants us to be healthy and to work right. That's what he. That's why he hates sin so much, because sin destroys us. It's like me eating poison. He loves me, so he doesn't want me to eat poison, even though I think it's a steak. It's not. Um, the C.S. Lewis Institute writes uh, around this wonderful quote, which I'll, I'll I'll finish this section with with Lewis, and then we'll we'll move to a close as we talk about what what does Jesus tell John to tell the churches about to tell the church in Ephesus in particular, and and through them us about um, how do we recover first love for God. But C.S. Lewis Institute writes, of course this law has been discovered before, but it will stand rediscovery. It may be stated as follows: every preference of a small good to a great, or partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice is made. So you put anything before the living God, you're going to lose that thing eventually. And you're going to, of course, lose lose God. Apparently the world is made that way. You can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. So, so second things just kind of follow if you put first things first. In a letter to, that was all written around Lewis's Writing in a letter to Dom Bede Griffiths in 1951, he states this principle. He says, Lewis says, put first things first and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first and we lose both first and second things. We never get, say, even the sensual pleasure of food at its best when we are being greedy. So you're putting um, food first instead of second. And when you put food first, the greed takes over and you don't really enjoy it as it's supposed to be enjoyed. Are there any areas, friend, in your life in which you're putting second things first? Jesus says, repent. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And, you know, um, man, I keep, there's so much here. This may seem, again, petty to us, perhaps, but it's, it's, I'm trying to tell you it's not for so many reasons. It's how we work. But also, we ought to be blown away by this kind of attention because in ancient Near Eastern religions, we're like, yeah, Jesus loves us. Well, Hey, in ancient Near Eastern religions, and I would contend that even in religions today, all other religions, all false religions, which is all other religions other than Christianity, the true, the true religion, if I can call it that, um, they're transactional. They're not love based. You perform this way. You live a pure life. You go on pilgrimage. You do these certain things. You give this much. You, um, you you give a, a bit of your crop or you know one of your children as a sacrifice or whatever it is to the gods or to God false god and he'll hopefully give you more in return more kids more crops um that's transactional that's that's the stock market you put a little in and you hope it grows that's to have a christianity came along the jews uh gave us because because he gave himself to them an, an insight into the true God. And he comes along in Deuteronomy 6 and says, love is what I want most. The first command that everything else falls from, hangs on, is to love me. with I've made you to love me 
I want you more than anything to love me with all of your power and heart and affection and will and intellect, everything you are, your body, all of it. And then to love others like you love yourself, to take care of them because they're made in my image. And when you love me, well, you will do that. It'll follow. And that, that was a God who craved relationship and made us for relationship with him. It is, was just unheard of in the ancient world. And I would say that it's the one thing that distinguishes Christianity from every false religion today. And at the center of that, we have this God who in love pursued us to death on the cross. It's, it's at the heart of the Christian, the Judeo-Christian faith. Um, so if we break, if we break this, everything else, if we don't attend to this truth, it's the truth that everything else hangs on. Nothing else matters. It all falls, right? It's, it's the key link in the chain. Um, and you know, you hear that, you hear that, um, you hear that line, you've lost that love and feeling that, that song, is it the Righteous Brothers? Um, and this is, um, not that. The way that Jesus talks about it, love isn't a feeling only. It produces feeling sometimes. Um, but in verse five, Jesus says to this church, uh, something that may surprise us. He says, repent and do the works you did at first. Okay. You've lost your first love. What's the solution? Uh, just feel, feel more passionately about it. You know, he says, repent and do the works you did at first. He doesn't say anything about feeling. Um, but remember, this flows out of verse four. And what he's saying here is something we all know, which is that love leads to works. True love leads to works and produces works. It's just the way that love works. Um, nobody has to tell a dude that's just head over heels for a woman to go do stuff for her. He's going to freaking mow her lawn. He's going to pay her bills. He's going to fly across the ocean for a dinner date. His burning love compels him. He's going to show up at the house of flowers, you know, and a a husband whose love has grown cold. He's doing all this stuff dutifully, but his love has grown cold. Nothing else. It's not the wife detects that it's everything else is a sham. Who cares? I just want you to love me. And if you love me, everything else is going to, everything else is going to come. And so he says, do the works you did at first. Um, The two are connected. And as we, so, um, you know, you don't, again, you don't have to tell, it's an insult. You don't have to tell a guy who's, who loves, truly loves a woman at the heart of their relationship to go do something for her. Um, deep and true love compels action. And, and at the heart of this, love, again, is the action of God in the person of Christ who hung on a rolling cross for us, who came to rescue us, to pay with his own body and soul for us, to, to redeem us, to rescue us, to bring us back to God. And that is what love looks like. And so looking again to that Christ and remembering, and he says, remember and repent and do the works you did at first and remember my faithfulness. Remember how things used to be. Um, Remembering is a huge part. Remembering the gospel, remembering God's faithfulness and his love poured out for us Uh, and repenting, just crying out to God and saying, Lord, renew a right spirit in me like David does in Psalm 51. 
is is part of the way that he tells this church to um, to get right with him. And you know, Ephesus did eventually dry up. The town ended up drying up, and um, the church. And it, it can happen. And her light was her lampstand was apparently removed. Uh, it can happen to any church. It can happen to any person. And it's the most important thing. Um, let me let me close with Tom Schreiner's uh, closing words in this section. He says, "If we've lost our first love, we must call to God and ask Him to rekindle our love for Him and others. Our orthodoxy must be leavened with love. Otherwise, we become stern and hard, forgetting the love that saved us from our own sins." Thank God that He cares so much about this. To Him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. He is restoring all things. He's making them new. He's at the heart of them. Um, make time for him. Make place for him. Repent and ask him to, once again, be the love that drives you. Um, church. I'm speaking to individuals. I'm speaking to churches as well. Let's do that together. God bless you.